0: Well, I'd like to jump in, get right to work. Uh, let's turn to Philippians 2. It's a very practical part in Scripture, one of the most kind of simple, practical, and profound formulas for unity in the church and building strong community. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2 to get us started. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Uh, This week I was sort of drawn to grab a book off my shelf that had been sitting there for quite some time. And uh, the passage itself, being about unity, being about community and having relationships together in the body of Christ, kind of drew me to this book. Uh, It's called Life Together I'm sure it's got a different cover now, but it's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, I just kind of dove into this book and devoured it this week, uh, finished it yesterday, and enjoyed it tremendously. It's kind of going to compel me to read probably everything that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his brief life here on earth. He died, as uh, many of you know, as sort of a martyr, um, martyr's death kind of, a uh, 39-year-old who uh, raised in Germany in a... Very uh, intelligent family, um, kind of a, a, a widely um, kind of renowned family in Germany, and had good schooling. and He went to um, Tubingen ultimately to study for ministry and become a pastor. and He um, graduated with honors and with all kinds of accolades. His his works, even from graduate school, became published, and he became a pastor. Um, overseeing two churches at one time in Germany and then moved uh, to the States during World War II and uh, became a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York and then was compelled and drawn back to Germany during the wartime. And If you know anything about the history of Bonhoeffer, you know he had um, a great angst with what Adolf Hitler was doing um, with the genocide against the Jews. He's very protective and, and very heartbroken over that and indignant and ultimately, though a pacifist by conviction, he felt very compelled to align himself with some people who were conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He just ultimately said, look, I got to go sort of contra to my natural, normal um, theological persuasions and think in terms of the conviction and he resolved himself um, by a conviction that he was responsible to align himself and actually be part of a co-conspiracy that that he was ultimately um, convicted by, um, and the Gestapo took him away because there were documents that exposed him in the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, which never happened. Ultimately, the Gestapo took him away, and he was imprisoned and sort of traveled in prisons for the last two years of his life during World War II, and during that time, uh, wrote some of his most profound works, um, which I have yet to read, but am compelled to reading uh, this book. One, one thing that I will fail to mention, though, is before he was taken away to prison, he was involved for some time with an underground sem- seminary. And he was training pastors uh, sort of with the underground church in Germany. And during that time, he was impressed to write on community and fellowship, having life together in the gospel and in gospel work. And I'm going to sort of open this up to us at the end of the sermon, the second half of the sermon, and we're look at Philippians 2 first. Uh, we're talking about community. And community is not something that is just for the Um, missionary martyr theologian like Dietrich Bonhoeffer community on a very deep rich profound life-changing level is for all Christians in the body of Christ I guarantee you that at some level we all are guilty of selling short the gift of community that we have in the church the relationships that we have in Christ are, or have the potential to be, deeper, more profound, longer lasting, more vibrant, more compelling, more soul filling than any other relationship imagined ever. It's incomparably rich what we've been given. It's the gift from God that he's given to us from the time Jesus rose from the dead until Jesus returns, what we just sang about. In between that time, we have each other. I mean, there are people who are, you know, like exiled, you know, imprisoned. Um, John on the island of Patmos, you know, a missionary to the heathen who doesn't have, you know, that kind of fellowship and intimacy, perhaps. But, but by and large, you are Someone who is made and designed for regular, transparent communion, community with other believers. It's what we're here for. It's it's what the church is designed to be. And we we should repent of not drinking as deeply in terms of the relationships and the access to each other that we should have and should be growing in in the church. Uh, the gift of community, the gift of church, is far deeper than just signing up to be a member. It's it's way different than just being involved in a society or a, you know a club. I'm you know currently some of you know I've been involved in this club, this water polo club thing. I got to talk about that as much as possible before I quit. But um, <laughs> but it's been really good. I mean it's it's good post Thanksgiving to get me back in the pool, but. You know, that, that community of friends is just as far as the sport goes. I mean, that, it's, it's, nothing, uh, it's nothing in comparison to what you have with each other in the gospel together. What God has done for you. Community is something that God does to you. He, he puts you into a fellowship that you either are availing yourself of or you're sort of isolated away From it, we need to realize that community life is normal to the Christian or should be. It's expected for the Christian. And Christ died for you to be in fellowship with him and with the saints. What will happen for all of eternity? Okay, This is heaven on earth. And that's what Philippians 2 is talking about. And I I think, man, I talk about this a lot. I'm starting to feel like a one-note Charlie or... Whatever, but Charles is my middle name. I don't know how that ties. But anyway, I I talk about this a lot because I think the Lord keeps bringing it up as we just go into the text of Scripture. And I think it's important for Anchorage Grace Church to be captivated by this issue of fellowship. Koinonia, it's a biblical word. Koinonia, fellowship, or community. Well, let's look at the text. Uh, First of all, this is Paul's formula for building strong community i want to ask two questions what first of all what breaks community what messes it up well our sin does right Um, first of all what breaks it is pride look at verse three the beginning of verse three in chapter two that first phrase is the sin that breaks community do nothing from rivalry or conceit just stop there rivalry or conceit being competitive for other with other people in, in rivalry with other people, being proud. That's what kills it. That's the, the seed sin you've heard that's beneath all other sins, right? Pride is what launched the human race into sin, and it began with Satan himself. And so pride is the arsenic that's injected into the body that poisons it, And destroys it from the inside out. And it begins in our own hearts. The contrast to everything else Paul is saying in these verses is pride. Pride is contrasted with humility. Everything else is talking about being humble. So the one thing you can't do to build community is be proud. We have to fight against that. Let me just say this. Uh, It all began with Satan and we're going to look at a couple of old testament passages that show that but before we do let me just sort of open this idea up to us as a concept the the pride versus humility dynamic in the body of christ is spiritual warfare There's a lot of things that we call spiritual warfare. There's a lot of things that are spiritual warfare that are happening to us, around us. The demons are real. They're alive. The devil is real. We're being tempted. That's happening. But the practical display of that, especially in our hearts and in our actions, is pride versus humility. Satan was proud. He puffed himself up. He wanted to be better than God. He wanted to push God off the throne and say, I'm now God. I'm the most high. That's pride. Jesus Second member of the Trinity, highest riches in glory in heaven, takes on the form of a man, comes down, becomes a servant, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, to be slaughtered in an ignominious, humble death. That's humility. Pride versus humility. Satan versus Jesus. Cain versus Abel. Light versus darkness. That's what's happening in the heart, in the body of Christ. That's where it's won and lost. Pride versus humility. This is spiritual warfare. That's what we're talking about here. Warfare in the church. Why is Paul giving this warning to a church that's so joy-filled and he's so joy-filled about? I mean, this is his sort of best friend church in the Bible. This is the most glowing letter in the New Testament regarding a church. You only have a little hint of, of uh, some discord between Yodia and sentichi well, it's because no church is impervious or without the danger of being disunified. Churches disintegrate because of pride. You have in 3 John Diotrephes. You remember him? I think it's 3 John verse 9 that stands up and he wants to be first amongst the brethren. He wants to to, to stand out as that leader. That kind of proud leadership destroys churches all the time. All the time. And so we have to be warned and proactively on guard against pride and proactively putting on humility to preserve the unity of the church, the community of the church, fellowship, the warmth and joy of relationships that we enjoy in the body of Christ. Well, pride is first, uh, it's the first sin. You can turn back, we're going to just glance at these passages, Ezekiel 28, Um, look there. This is primarily first talking about the king of Tyre, verses 1 through 10, and then 11 and following. Um, The author, Ezekiel, moves from a natural being to a supernatural being and talks about Satan. He says, uh, verse 12, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was covering sardius, topaz, and diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. um, You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. It's when the sin of pride was was born in the heart of this premier angel, this angel turned demon or devil. And he was exalting himself above God in his heart. This is an angel that had tremendous uh, privilege and honor. He was anointed and he was bejeweled with all of the glory of God on him. And then in verse 16 it says, In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. That trade word is the idea of he was the Pass through or or the go between between the angelic hosts, the myriads and myriads of angels um, were, were flowing worship through this created being's leadership. It's as if Satan was the worship leader in heaven. And yet, verse 17, his heart was proud because of his beauty and corrupted because of his wisdom. And God cast him to the ground, exposed him. It's a sin of pride. It's easy for us to look down our noses at Satan and say, Oh, you know, how could he do that? But we as born-again, spirit-filled believers fall prey to this sin all the time. We've got all the, you know, accoutrements of heaven here on earth with the church, all the blessings of God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, friends, family, people encouraging us. We puff up so quickly in pride, and we, in our hearts, would do the same sin that Satan did if we were able, trying to dethrone God himself. It's uh, repeated as well in Isaiah 14. Look over there. Isaiah 14, verse 12. And there's five I wills that I'll read that were in Satan's heart. that show this sin of pride. Verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here, stop there. The word most high there is a name for God. It's El Elyon. It means the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things, heaven and earth. In essence, what Satan was saying in his heart wasn't, I want to be equal with God. Satan was saying, I want to push God off the throne and take his position as creator and sustainer and owner of all things created. That was in Satan's heart. That's the pride dynamic. That's what we align ourselves with when we in the church get puffed up with vanity and conceit. When, when we're coming into a relationship with someone and, and we start to jockey for position. Perhaps you even may think, and this is sort of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was, was exposing as I read um, his book Life Together. He was talking about how there are weak Christians in the church and there are strong Christians in the church weaker Christians sometimes will will use and assert their weakness as a means of control to manipulate and saying I'm the neediest person here at church and I need you more than you could imagine and so it's sort of a way to wield pride and power over stronger people and stronger people on the other hand might say I'm a stronger person I'm comfortable i'm confident and and so i don't need a weaker person and so people pit themselves against each other whether they're strong or weak or alike or different in manifold ways to manipulate and jockey for power and destroy community this is satanic this is that spiritual warfare for which god condemned satan and god condemns this sin it's a sin that we should be uh Willing to think about, willing to face off with and say, listen, I need to destroy pride in my life so that I am not harmful to the fellowship. Do you realize that as an individual, you carry influence, whether you know it or not, in the fellowship? And if you're strong in the Lord, if you're humble, if you're putting on Christ and putting others first... You are helping the body of Christ. Even if you're doing it in behind-the-scenes ways, it's influencing the body. And if you're proud, the contrary is happening. We don't want to be that. So, first of all, you have to remember that pride is what is doing that. It's Satan, it's the first sin, it's the sin of Satan, and secondly, it's it's being self-focused. You know, I... I read one commentator, William Barclay, on this, and he was talking about the strange irony in the church. The church that's strong and strong in their convictions for truth can be one of the most susceptible churches to becoming disunified. It's kind of an oxymoron. You're strong in the, tr- the truth, you, you love the Word of God by conviction, but the stronger your convictions become, the stronger you have a potential for conflict. You can't grip the truth with a prideful grip. You've got to hold on to the truth with a humble heart. That's the key to humility. And if you're self-focused, if your eyes are on yourself, verse 3, it says, Do nothing, nothing at all from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others. The opposite of being proud and And in rival with people is putting others first, is counting other people's needs as better and more important and more significant than your own. And if you're you're self-focused, you're filled with pride, and if you're others-focused, you're not. But pride is being self-focused, which, by the way, some people call a living hell. I know that the angst and uh, sort of pangs of of guilt that we experience here are being locked up with all kinds of, you know, being discontented on life and what you think you deserve and the wars that go on in your heart, um, they can't really compare to hell, but I think that they are a small sampling of hell in that it's hellish to be self-consumptive, to, to, to feel like, man, I need other people to affirm me. I need affirmation. I need to be built up. I need to get things that I think I deserve. When you live in this state of entitlement, it can be a personal hell on earth. Where you're locked up inside and you're not happy and you're never content. It hurts you physically, it'll hurt you spiritually, and it'll hurt the body of Christ. So pride is being self-focused. And then next, pride interrupts meaningful relationships. You can't have a truly edifying, Christ-honoring relationship when you're focused on yourself, when you're focused on being better than people. Um, You can't. The Lord calls the Christian to come into community and be bound together because of Jesus Christ. One of the other things I picked up in that book, Life Together, was the idea that um, Bonhoeffer was talking about community and warning people not to become self consumers or even people consumers, where, where you're just, you can't stand to be away from people, so you inject yourself into people's lives to sort of rectify the loneliness in your life you're just saying I've got to have people and you connect so directly and intimately with people that you begin to use each other and manipulate each other to sort of build your own emotional state so that's not Christian fellowship Christian fellowship is where you have Christ in common it's as if you have Christ between you and the reason you love someone and are enjoying someone is because they love Jesus too That's Christian fellowship. It's community around Jesus, where you don't become codependent on each other. You become Jesus entranced together, and you're building each other up in Christ. In that way, you let people be different than you are. You let people um, live different lives than you do. You don't try to dominate people. When people are in sin, you, you let them have their situation with god and you you give them the word of god and you encourage them but you also release them to do business with their lord and it's a it's a freeing thing to understand that christian relationships first have christ and then you have each other and that's where it's healthy that's where it's healthy and we'll talk about that towards the end one other just uh story from scripture speaking of the pride that breaks community and fellowship that i'll just point out and then we'll move to the next point is you remember when jesus was walking with his disciples it was mark 10 and then matthew 20 it's the same story and and you have james and john the sons of zebedee and their mom and the mom comes up and kneels down before jesus and says please let my sons one or the other sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom now what is she doing? You say, well, she's other-centered. She's building up her children. No, you know what she's doing? is She's vicariously enjoying her own pride through her kids. I know none of us are ever tempted to do that, right? Where we sort of try to live our dreams through our children and pump them up and put them in positions to feed our own status, but that's what she was doing. Jesus saw through that and said, you know, well, what's ironic, what's, what's amazing is how he had just in the previous breath, before she did that, talked about how he was going to be betrayed by a disciple, going to be taken and scourged and beaten and crucified, sold out. He was just saying that before she said this, and so she was completely missing the point of their community, completely missing the gospel. In the community and promoting herself instead—that's unhealthy. That's not Christian community. That's pride-breaking community. Anyway, well, what makes community? It's the—it's the contrast. It's everything else that verses one through four says. Being humble. This is what you should remember. We all should. Being humble. First of all, in verse one, Paul is talking to the body of Christ, but he's talking for—he's talking to each individual. To remember their salvation experience—that's verse one. He's talking collectively to churches or the church of Philippi, but he's talking to the person, to the individual. He's saying, "Remember four things about your salvation." He uses rhetorical questions, if-then ideas, to inspire thought for the individual Christian to go, "Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah." I, He goes, if you had this, and your your response in your heart is, yes, I had that. That's what's going on in verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, this is the word parakale. It's the idea that Jesus Christ, when you were saved, came alongside you. Do you remember that? You didn't have Christ before you were saved. He opened your eyes, and there was Jesus, and then you had Christ after you were saved. And he came alongside you. He became your brother. He became your friend. He became your confidant. He became the one that's most dearest and precious to you, who's encouraged you, first of all. Secondly, comfort from love. Secondly, Paul is saying, look, you didn't know love before you knew Jesus. The love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts, and we begin to understand self-sacrifice. We begin to understand the joy of being loved and loving other people. Thirdly, any participation in the Spirit. This is the word fellowship here. Any koinonia in the Holy Spirit. Did you experience koinonia before Christ? It's impossible. We might superficially see it and taste it. And know of it in the church. But when you become a Christian, you, you bond with the body of Christ in a way that you cannot bond until you're in Christ. You're participating. You're participating in the mission together for the gospel. You care about things that you didn't care about before. Any affection and sympathy. The word affection is the word for bowels. It's the idea that you are moved emotionally because of the gospel. I remember I was a pretty dried, dry eyed person before I came to Christ, and then I was able to, once knowing Jesus, I was able to cry for people, and cry because of my own sins. He awakened emotion in me, for God and for other people. I remember one person witnessing to me who cared about me was saying, "You know, I'm noticing something about you. You say you're a Christian, you say you're in Christ, but when you're around other believers, you don't wake up. You don't seem happy to be around those other believers. Even if they're different than you are, you don't care about them. You're not responsive. There's something wrong." And that person was so right. I wasn't in the Lord yet and care about other believers yet. But all those things were awakened when I was saved and And Paul is reminding Christians to remember or recollect their salvation experience that's unique to themselves, individually, to inspire grace in the heart of the believer to be humble to other people. In other words, look, you've been fed by the Lord so much, now feed other people. And, and it could even be a corporate sense where, look, you've experienced the encouragement of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of the Holy Spirit, the affection and compassion from the body already. Now take it to another level in humility. This, this brings the protection and guidance to the church that we talked about in chapter 1, verse 27. You're protected from enemies as you are unified in the gospel. You're building up the gospel together. Verse 2, he says, complete my joy, he's talking corporately now, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. You're together now. Well, there's a corporate sense here where we are motivated by grace to each other. Salvation is a better experience than anything else we can imagine. Do you remember when you were first saved? Do you remember how excited you were about Christ when you were first saved? You should have some recollection of the lights coming on. Maybe not in the immediate moment, but in a season in your life where you thought, man, Christ is everything. Well, Paul is saying that to grow spiritually and to be humble to other people, you've got to be recaptivated by that experience. And that's what he's doing in verses one and two. Secondly, Giving is a better way of life than every other way. I mean, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is the opposite of being self-focused. Look at verse 3. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The word mind is used, by the way, all through these verses. The word count uh, is also translated with humility of mind. It's, it's a... It's a mindset that you have to sort of put on and choose as a believer. You want your heart to melt by being reminded of your salvation experience. Then you have to deliberately look at someone, perhaps someone that's needy, someone that you wouldn't normally be drawn to, someone who maybe is an enemy of yours, someone who you haven't buried the hatchet with yet, and you're drawn to them with humility of mind, and you say, you know what, I'm going to put them first. I'm going to elevate Their needs above my own. It's the idea literally of coming underneath somebody. Or 1 Peter 3, clothing yourself with humility. It's a humility of mind. It's a discipline of being free. You're not bound by people. You're not walking in angst by people. Think about it. How joyful is it not to be mad at anybody because you're called to be humble and count their needs as more important than your own. So you're just free from the anger that... Maybe you've had harboring against people. You just love them. In the gospel ministry, in the church, in true community, you can love all different kinds of personality types, all different kinds of people. There isn't social status. There isn't um, really, you know, things just are, are sort of blurred and go away in terms of categories of people. The Roman system here would have very much distinguished between someone who was poor and rich and who had status and who didn't. And all that goes away in the church, in the gospel. Because you, you're on a mission to esteem others higher than yourself. It's not a facade. It's not a charade. It's not disingenuous. It's not just a mental work ethic. It's, it's literally saying, you know, I have some personal needs. Look at, look at verse 4. It says, let each of you... Look not only to your own interests. I have some interests. I have physical needs. I have spiritual needs. I have um, family needs, uh, etc. I mean, the Bible's realistic about our needs, but it's saying put other people's needs first. Now, you know, I'll admit. I mean, I'm a pretty selfish person naturally. You know, by nature, by sin nature, maybe by personality. And I think the Lord gave me six children to try to rebuff some of that in my life. And I'm not kidding. I don't know what your version of crazy is. We all have it. But God dials things up for our own individual lives to get our eyes off of ourselves and to put it on others or on Christ. That's the dynamic. That's spiritual warfare. I love what Blaise Pascal said. Um, when he's talking about people who are in it for themselves, he says, What amazes me most is that everyone is not amazed at his own weaknesses. We're called to play second fiddle. You know, we, we try to to be first, but we're called to play second. And that, there was an um, orchestra leader who, who said the hardest, it was a conductor in a symphony, he said the hardest chair to fill in my orchestra is second violinist he said second violin i can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm that is a problem and if we have no second violin we have no harmony the old adage it takes more grace than i can tell to play the second fiddle well that's what we're called to do i mean we we sort of grab at life we go for it but we're called to support people in the body, and that is spiritual. Now, lastly, Christ Jesus is a better example than every other one. And I want to just emphasize this. It's sort of a lead-in to next week. It says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, here's the mind word, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Jesus came and died for you, that was his choice to do it. That was in concert with the Godhead. But you just got to sort of narrow in in meditation on this concept that Jesus went, Okay, I'm king over everything, created everything. And there's a sinful humanity that has rebelled against me. And I'm going to come beneath them as their servant to save them none of us has done that none of us will ever do that none of us are better than jesus is the point you're not better than jesus i'm not better than jesus jesus is better he's the greatest example he's the ultimate leveler in the body of christ you say i can't serve that person because dot 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 but jesus did it better he served all of the world died for the world as a servant. He's the Savior, and he levels the playing field because he's better. Unity, in that sense, is not an option. I read a story about a Chinese evangelist. Um, I don't agree with all of his theology, but Watchman Nee, and he was um, talking about a, a Christian in China who was, was struggling with a neighbor. He was uh, a rice farmer, and he was you know, trying to irrigate his, his crops, and he had a higher... Um, setting on the mountainside than his neighbor. His neighbor was beneath him, and as he irrigated his crops, the neighbor somehow was able to pirate some of that water with release valves and irrigation systems to water his field as well. And so this Chinese man was growing bitter about this because it was creating more work for him to keep his crops healthy. So ultimately, instead of attacking that man or confronting him, he went away and prayed with some people in community. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that what he should do is go and first water the crops of his neighbor, and then go water his own. That's the spirit of what we're called to do. That's radically different than the world, and that's what puts the gospel on display. That's what advances the gospel, is this kind of humble service. All right, for the last few 10 minutes or so I want to just sort of talk from this book if I can it'll be the take-home point so you have it as a handout or you can pick it up on your way out and uh, I was I was deeply moved by Dietrich Bonhoeffer I would I would definitely commend the book to you but let me just share some of the crystallized points as practical steps for humility and community building in the body I think it's important for us number one First of all, you've got to grasp that community is a spiritual community, not a human reality. There was a big warning by Bonhoeffer to not try to superficially approach a community. Uh, we have community groups that you can sign up for, show up for, and be involved in. But just the structure of community groups is not spiritual koinonia in and of itself. That's not community. Community is a spiritual reality. It's what I spoke of already. It's what God has put you into. It's what you are impacting positively or negatively depending on your spiritual disposition and attitude. But it is spiritual and it is a gift. We're not called to be reclusive. We are called to solitude with Christ, but then we're called to take that solitude and bring it into a family setting. It's a precious gift. It's literally, watch this, it's being Christ to people. All Christians long for the physical presence of Christ. We we want his perfect touch. And one day we'll see him face to face. We're like the two on the road to Emmaus who met and ate with Jesus. And as as Jesus was sort of getting up to leave, as evening approached, they said, oh, they urge him, please stay a little longer. And, And we're supposed to be that For the body. Uh, To live is Christ. And so you're you're bringing the presence of Christ into someone's life when you have that kind of relationship. You ever had a Christian relationship like that? You should. You should. It's It's a precious gift. And to have those kinds of relationships where Christ is between. They transcend time. They transcend geography. And they're powerful testimonies of the gospel. We're designed for this. There's a warning, though, that community um, can become kind of a superficial idol or um, a dreamlike ideal for people where people will say, Look, things are going bad in my life because the community's going all wrong. It's not meeting my needs. It's where people come in with a self-centeredness. They they come in with superficial motivations where they want to either take charge of people or feed off and drain from people. And that's not community building at all. There are people who are afraid to be alone or alone with God, and so they thrust themselves into relationships with people with ill motivations, self-focused motivations. Those disrupt community. They, they're letdowns. Instead, we have to examine ourselves and say, I want to seek people because I'm seeking the Lord. I want to build others up for God's glory. And if I'm in need and weak, I want to come in and just, just open myself in humility and say, I need more Jesus in my life. And that's why I'm coming to you for help. That's community building. It's seeing other people as their own Selves all made individually in the image of God and not being sort of a, you know, a discerner of persons where you say, well, I'll be in community with that person or that kind of group, but not that kind of group. It sort of breaks through the cliques and you're just going in because you need Christ and you need to promote Christ to other people. When you're people-oriented in a community, you know what'll happen? Eventually, um, you'll begin to, a debate will arise about truth, and, and if people are in community just for relationships first and not for Christ first, people will compromise truth. Because the truth hurts and people are protective of their own sins and the truth exposes sins. And if you're in community for sort of felt need-based motivations, you're not going to stand firm in the truth. And as a community that's built on truth, that's built on the gospel, that's built on Christ, we need to be guardians of the truth and be willing to let people um, be freed or loosed from the community for a time if they're compromising the truth. You're willing to let a relationship go for the sake of the gospel. That's Christian community. You're willing, watch this, on the other hand, when people are enemies and they're in your community or in your church, you're willing to love your enemy and pray for your enemy because Christ is in between you and your enemy. You pray for your enemy because you see your enemy underneath the same blood of Jesus that you're under. That's Christian community. But if someone's relationship-based or relationship-motivated first and foremost and has no thought of Christ, when they become your enemy, what are you going to do? You're going to leave or they're going to leave. There's distance. That's not Christian community. Number two, community finds its source in the model and model in the Trinity. We don't have time to talk about this too much, but just know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in concert together when you were saved. They were all intricately part of your redemption story. And from all of eternity, the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, one God, have been in fellowship with each other forever. And it will forever be that way. And that is our model. For community. Just got to mention that. Number three. Community grows through corporate worship. I want you to turn your Bibles just uh, two pages back or so. Ephesians 5. You ever heard of Ephesians 5.18? Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. What that looks like is described by the next verse. And it really is a description of corporate community building. This is what we did this morning. We built community together this morning. Watch this. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What does that mean? I used to always think, okay, all right, what does it mean? You're you're singing together, but then you're so spirit-filled that you just stop your singing and go over to somebody and say, hey, I want to just build you up. And that person's going, ah and you're trying to like talk to them you know and interrupt them is that what you're doing you're supposed to address each other during a song hey I want to confront you about this sin I know you're like third stanza in and really engrossed but let me no what this is talking about is simply this it's corporately singing together affirming truth together that's community building that's what it means to be spirit filled it's one of the dynamics now We individually sing, we sing alone, we sing as a family, you know, we we sing in different ways. But the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, one of the main reasons we should come together is to sing truths together. Say, I don't like to sing, or I'm not a good singer. Well, a lot of that is kind of, you know, excuses. It's, it's just extra, you know, ways to let ourselves out of, of, of this spiritual discipline that we should be part of. When we sing a truth together, it's imprinting it more and more deeply on our hearts that we believe it. That's why we sing gospel, doctrinally, um, sound truths even singing psalms see that there it says sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs when we sing scripture it's affirming scripture together it's a, it's the motivation for coming together it's not ritual it's that's why we hear a sermon together we're filled at colossians 3 is the parallel to ephesians 5 Where Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the response is the same. You'll you'll sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. The reason we're collectively hearing the word of God together, it's not that we couldn't break up into twos or threes and have individual Bible studies during this time, but there is a spiritual discipline to coming together as the community of saints to be on the same page together for the gospel. That's community building. It's hearing A same message, it's being of like-mindedness together. It's having the same mind, Philippians chapter 2 says. Together. All right, let me go to a, a different one. Community comes from sharing life together. I just want to mention this. I mean, last week we had, had a meal together. I think that's a real practical expression of community building, is eating together. You might say, well, how is that spiritual? Well, Jesus fed the 5,000. He, he broke the loaves and fishes. He, he expanded that. He supped with the two on the road to Emmaus. We're going to have a banquet feast in heaven, right? Food is part of community building, and it's a real symbol of sustaining grace in our lives. Even though it's a physical sustenance, it reflects The the heart of gratitude that God is sustaining us spiritually and building us up as a community of co-sustainers in the body of Christ. So eating a meal together is a strong way to build community. Ecclesiastes 9.7, eat your bread with joy. Number five, community begins with your individual spiritual life. I've talked about this, uh, you know, some already that we remember our salvation experience and and, and our joy and how filled up we are determines how much we can impact other people in community. If you're drained and you're showing up to fellowship with people, you're going to be a drain. And sometimes we are drained and we need each other that way. But by and large, we should be filled in the Spirit and ready to build the body in community. A lot of people avoid community because they've they got nothing to give. They've got nothing to give. Well, one of the practical ways that uh, we need to think about building community and building ourselves first is thinking about how we spend the lion's share of our hours every day of our lives, because that really makes or breaks whether we can build people in community. You say, well, I work a job. I work 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, and so when am I supposed to exercise the spiritual disciplines you're about to talk about to build my heart up for community? Well, there's something that Bonhoeffer brought up that I thought was very, very helpful. And he talked about work. He talked about your daily job as the it in your life. He calls it the it world. You know, you're, you're sort of on mission to achieve a goal, to achieve a task. You've got a duty that you've got to um, accomplish, a hill you have to take. You have money you've got to earn. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom, you've got things to do, things to, uh, you know, to conquer at home. He calls it the it world, and he says work plunges men into the world of things. But he also said that work, and the Bible says, that work should be a sanctifying process. You have hours for God to use something as an instrument in your life to change your life and prepare you to be a community builder. Say, how do you get there from here? I, I, I don't see it. I hate my job. I hate my life. Oh, it's pressure. Oh. How does that become spiritual for me? Well, the answer is you got to pray while you work. You got to make the it turn into the thou. Or while you work, pray without ceasing to God and redeem it. Redeem the time, pray for people. It'll in- increase your motivations, it'll increase your vitality, your strength. Um, you will have a better witness. You'll have wisdom. You'll have clarity on what to say to people if you are in the Spirit praying while you work. So it begins and ends with your spiritual life and then, and then it, it flows into community with people. You know, if, if you have an individual life where your cup is full, it will feed the community and if you're being filled in the community, it will feed your individual life. You've got to have solitude with Christ to have solid time with the community, and vice versa. kind of works that way. Well, let's go through a few spiritual disciplines. Number one, community is practiced through spiritual disciplines, meditation. Meditation is sort of an ancient um, idea, and a lot of times we relegate it to the past and say, well, you know, life's pace nowadays does not allow for meditation. I mean, how am I supposed to meditate my busy, chaotic life? Well, if you're not meditating on Scripture, which I've been guilty of before, if you're not meditating on Scripture, you're missing the, the essence of the Christian walk with Christ. I think we need to read large portions of Scripture. We need to get through the Bible regularly to encounter all of the scripture we need to find our story in God's story we need to suffer with Israel and and their disobedience and we need to see ourselves being redeemed by Christ 2,000 years ago we need to be more concerned with Jesus's death than our death and when we'll die because that is the great history we're going to find our history in Christ's history But you need to also go in very specifically on key concepts and terms and drill down deeply if you want to experience joy in your Christian life, if you want to fill up. Meditate. It's where you think about a concept hard. You go, okay, I'm going to think about the cross. Reading along, okay, the cross or the love of God. Remember Ephesians 3 where Paul said, I want you, he's praying for the church. I want you to know the height, depth, length, and breadth and to know the love of God which is in Christ. How does that happen? It's by meditating. All right, next, interceding. We talked about this. We should intercede for people we like and intercede for people we're struggling with. Intercede with enemies. See everyone under the same blood of Christ. Third, meekness. It's a call to be humble. It's a call not to uh, put on some sort of religious garb and think that you are more super spiritual than somebody else. You're not supposed to be like the pastor who Um, walked by the man who fell amongst thieves probably reading the bible he walks by the person you know until the good samaritan comes and dresses the wounds we we shouldn't super spiritualize our busyness or our religious busyness we need to be meek and humble which can practically mean we need to listen to people everything about that I'm not a good listener. I'm a good talker. I mean, listening is very important. A lot of times, people just want to be heard. And have you ever been listened to when you really needed it? Remember how helpful that was to your own soul? Someone understood me. They got it. Oh, the burden comes off. Which brings me to my next point. Service. Willingness to be interrupted. Not be the master of our own schedules and dictator of our own urgencies and goals. We have to let God determine our schedule and be willing to serve on a moment's notice. Next, bearing. This is Bonhoeffer's word. Galatians 6.2, bearing one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. You want to fulfill all of what Jesus cares about, how he interprets the entire Bible? Then just get alongside somebody's burden. And you can't be a respecter of persons. You've got to enter into all different kinds of people and bear their cross with them. That's what Jesus did. Isaiah 53, 4, 5, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Proclaiming, sometimes we've got to share Jesus with people. Community building is also about being willing to confront people with their sins. With the Scripture. There's all kinds of warnings, you know, that are involved in this. You don't want to speak a word in a, an abrupt or arrogant or proud manner. You don't want to hurt people spiritually. But you also don't want to let yourself off the hook too quickly and have the blood be on your hands where you could have said something where someone was destroying their lives and you could have intervened and you didn't. It's like where Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, we cannot do that. And sit idly by when people are hurting and need to hear the truth. Lastly, confession. This was the most powerful part of the book, and we're kind of out of time. Um, but I have to go here a little bit. James five sixteen says, "Confess your sins one to another." Um, to confess sins, you know what that means. That means you are willing to go to somebody else, privately, in a safe manner, and talk to them about something you've done that is killing you. You talk about your sin to a co-confessor, not some priest. You can go to a pastor and talk to them about your sin, that's fine. But you're going to another willing, soft-hearted person and saying, look, this is what eats me alive. This, is, this sin, where I can't get past it, it's what has isolated me from the body. I can't come in full, authentic relationship and joy because I've got this thing that has bound me up and I'm afraid to tell anybody about it. I know I've done business with God. I think I have, but maybe you haven't. And there's a, there's a sense in which sometimes we'll convince ourselves that we've done business with God, that we've truly repented of it and God has forgiven us. So that's enough. But really all we've done is confessed it to ourselves. And a way to get past that Funk, that dilemma is to sometimes go to someone and make your sin concrete. Tell them what you did. Doesn't mean tell the whole church, it's just tell someone what you did and it's concretized and then you can pray about it together and you can trust the gospel and forgiveness together. That's the ministry of confession of sin together. It's where now, this is a quote from the book now you are a sinner, now you get to be a sinner. You know, I did it. I I own it. And you own it and you treasure the gospel together in boldness and in joy. You've killed self-justification and you're no longer alone. Do you want this kind of community? I do. I want to protect this kind of community and promote it here at our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and we thank you for the ultimate example of humility in Christ. He was the one who died for the church and he prayed that the church would be unified and protected and I pray God that we would do our part by obeying the scripture and watching you grow us in grace through relationships and I pray that if someone here does not yet know you has not yet been drawn into the community that you would awaken that person's heart to know you in Jesus name we pray amen